Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Janice Wong and your guest presenter is Jenny Lam. On today's program, we're looking at the easing of government guidelines that could free up more than 300 hectares of land for brownfield operators. Many brownfield operators who had run warehouses or car parks on degraded agricultural land have been complaining after they were forced to relocate for the development of new towns. Now they can apply to use 24 plots of land dotted across the new territories as brownfield sites for up to three years. Two-thirds of the new land available are in green belt areas or are designated as farmland. So is this a good solution? What impact would this plan have on the environment? Are there any viable alternatives? After 9.45, we'll find out more about a new COVID sub-variant found in Hong Kong. Let us know what you think on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3, email us at backchat on rthk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. Joining our discussion this morning, we have in our Kowloon Tong studio is senior Greenpeace campaigner Chan Haofchen and on the line we have Jason Leung, researcher from our Hong Kong Foundation. Good morning, Ms. Chan. Good morning. And uh, good morning, Mr. Leung. Thanks for joining us on the program. Um, so, Mr. Leung, what do you think will be the impact of the changes? Uh, I mean, will the uh, difficulties faced by displaced uh, brownfield operators be resolved? Well, thank you. Um, I think, firstly, this solution looks to me uh, like a makeshift solution. Um, I think, you know, in the short term, of course, the government's priority is to release land for the timely development of these new development areas, such that housing can be delivered on time. But in the long term, this seems likely to create an even more severe problem. Uh, uh, why is that? It's because, you know, these brownfield operators, they now, if they accept uh, the government's proposal and apply and move um, to another brownfield location, now in the next few years, since the government is so big on developing the northern metropolis, some of these areas may be developed again uh, in the future. And then the resistance from these brownfield operators is even, uh, is going to uh, increase even more because, you know, they've just relocated, perhaps they've invested in new plants, uh, equipment, machinery, etc. And they didn't have, uh, you know, enough time to amortize all this capital investment. And they will say to the government, hey, no, you just you told us to move here just a few years earlier and now you're asking us to move again that's going to create even more problems in the future. So I think, well, this may, you know, help the government meet the target in the short term, but in the long term, this seems to be creating an even bigger problem instead. Okay, um, so Chan Hao-Xian, you're with, you're with Greenpeace. Now, let's just clarify what we mean by brownfields. These are basically just rural land and now being used for warehouses or logistics, meaning they're piling up cargo containers. Anybody who's driven through Yunlong would know that. Isn't this... Um, new rule by the government just saying continue to store your cargo container there? Yes, not actually just continue to use, but they provide a big piece. Uh, 300 hectares of land is like 17 uh, factory part, uh, slash that. To you can just uh, use these new songs for a uh, brownfield, so it's not continue. It's actually a massive expansion. So, what what is the damage to the environment, or what is the impact on the environment? 
currently, uh, these brownfield sites, many of them, are, there are still active farmland over there. And also, it, uh, there are a few pieces of land that are very close to the country park. So, and, and actually, it's uh, just next to the border of the coastal protection area that uh, there are many egrets or other important birds that live nearby. And even the government wants uh, the AFCD yeah, um, resist on transitioning uh, re one of the sites into brownfield lands. So you can see uh, from the government side of view, actually these are not the perfect site for uh, brownfield as well because they rejected before. But now uh, what they are doing is that they uh, allow the brownfield to uh, locate very near to these uh, sensitive area. And we all know that brownfield, there is a certain pattern of, on brownfield. They just don't stay there. They expand where they are. So uh, they, it brings a really great threat to the environment next to the, these brownfield sites. Yeah, but the problem is presumably there is a demand for sites to store these cargo containers and the government is trying to come up with um, uh, uh, an alternative by building sort of basically multi-story um, storage. Um, so what is the obstacle there? Uh, well, firstly, it's a very slow uh, solution that the government is proposing because they spent almost seven years for the just the feasibility study. And until now, it's not very clear what's the exact timeline that the brownfield operators can move into that. So I guess the timeline and it's an internal problem within the government departments. So it's now it's like they haven't done their homework, but then they create another problem and they just, uh, they are not really solving it. They just postpone what they should supposed to do. And then they use another, not exactly a solution, but they just postpone the deadline with a very uh, bad uh, way of doing that. So uh, we guess uh, they can actually do that uh, for resolving the brownfield operations. It's not just move them into another site. It's uh, roughly thinking how to efficiently use the uh, sites to put the stack of the operators. And then some of them are actually illegal, like dismantling e-sites and smuggling. So for those kind of operations, they should have just uh, banned it or they just uh, eliminate them instead of just move them into another area for them to survive. All right. Uh, let's then now bring in uh, Dr. Rita Lee, the director of Xu Yan University Sustainable Real Estate Research Center. Good morning, Dr. Lee. Morning. Thanks for joining us on our program. Um, now, earlier, Mr. Leung uh, from our Hong Kong Foundation, he said uh, the changes will actually create a more severe problem. What's your view on that? Well, uh, actually, the, uh, if we talk about the main change here, that is, uh, they uh, actually expand the original uh, places for which that they are ecologically non-sensitive area that are left vacant. There's a category three or category four that is permanently or partly occupied by farmfield or other temporary sites uh, to the category two, uh, which means that uh, they, uh, they they can more likely to like uh, operate, uh, put those uh, warehouses and corporates over there. And then uh, to certain extent, uh, what we have seen is that uh, this, uh, uh, this approach uh, obviously is to pave the way for the northern new territories developments because uh, most of the places that we have seen where they have got these uh, massive changes is mainly on the northern part of the new territories. 
So uh, because uh, in most of the circumstances in the past, when we talk about the development of the new territories or those like green area, and then turning back to those like uh, build up area, for example, the main problem or the main hurdles is that in these areas, we mainly we cannot see any roads, any uh, uh, any like uh, a dra- a drainage maybe that is like. Uh, really needed for those like residential areas so that uh, what we have seen is that in the uh, in some of the residential developers like for some handsome land uh, you may ask the question why these lands were not developed in the past the main reason is that well if you found that well the road is not there uh, maybe the drainage you have to do a lot of things uh, in order to suitable for uh, make it suitable as a residential areas so they have to do a lot so I think the main move is that uh, they uh, want to take it step by step and then to um, to develop the uh, to fasten the pace of the development in the uh, green fields uh, in, in in the new ter- uh, northern part of the new territories but we also we also need to take note of this change is mainly uh, 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 driven by and uh, 13 section 13 G of the time planning board guideline in the time planning board ordinance so uh, it also stated that the purpose of this uh, 30G of the time planning board guideline is to ensure that the open storage and the port belt areas should have no adverse environmental drainage, traffic, and also other impacts on the surrounding areas. So uh, they have to, the applicants itself, they have to take note of the requirements under the environmental impact assessment ordinance in chapter 499. So it means that uh, uh, even though that there there will be a, a development and to become like uh, uh, those other build up area, but they also take note of these uh, environmental uh, impact as well. All right, Dr. Lee, you just mentioned uh, some ne- technical terms like uh, category three and category four. I'm just going to clarify this a bit, but do correct me if I if I um, get this wrong. Basically, the 320 hectares of land we are talking about right now, it was originally classified as category three and four in the town planning board's guidelines, which means they are are not recommended for use as brownfield sites and for example ponds wetland areas or ecologically sensitive sites and now after the change land in these two categories will be moved to category two which means uh they they can be they can get permission uh, to um to to be used as uh, open storage or port backup uses is that correct dr lee uh, that is like uh, for yes for the category three and also four that they turn into category two among these sites these selected sites. Right. So not so, all the sites are turned to like category two, but right. it is so, like just these. So- Right, so the 320 hectares we're talking about is supposed to be less uh, ecologically sensitive. Ms. Chan, have you looked at the sites? Are they less ecologically sensitive? Uh, I don't, I, I can't agree on this because, as I said, uh, there are still many active farmlands on the, uh, there, uh, for example, in Shekong and uh, Pengkong, and there are up uh, as most as uh, more than 10 hectares of farmland over there. And even on a, a government document, it says um, many of them, there are still, there are just some brownfield operations, but the rest there is. Uh, uh, either vacant or there are still farmlands over there. And besides farmland, there are still sites that are close to the country park. And also there is one very uh, important site that is in uh, Laofaoshan. It's just next to the coastal production area where the government uh, in the northern metropolis uh, planning, they're going to turn the coastal protection area into a coastal protection park that is to upgrade their ecological protection measures over there. So it's actually uh, contradicting um, uh, measures now in uh, to to turn them into brownfield sites where uh, they recognize the surrounding is a very important ecological site. All right, Mr. Lung, uh, have have you looked at some of these sites? 
Yes, and, and uh, so how, how many of them are really are like agricultural sites, or and how many of them are, are like sensitive areas, sensitive green areas? Well, I do agree with Chen with some of the observations in that you know uh, I've especially looked into details of these sites in Hapalai, uh, and uh, these are really close to some uh, some of the coastline and the uh, ecologically sensitive areas. So. Um, of course, uh, like what the professor said, you know, uh, the government has indicated that they will consider uh, these different uh, ecological concerns, uh, infrastructure requirements, so on and so forth. But, you know, by uh, rezoning some of these areas to Category 2, it seems, uh, it seems still likely that the government wants to, you know, relocate some of these operations to these uh, sensitive areas. So I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, uh, these are kind of conflicting points, but I, I'm, I'm not sure how the government will do this in the future. That's why I mentioned just now, this seems like a makeshift solution. You know, Mr. Lang, this uh, North Metropolis is going to, to go ahead regardless as planned. And as Dr. Lee pointed out, um, right now there's a lack of infrastructure. Um, eventually, that that infra infrastructural development will come. And so what do you think the, I mean, right now, you know, you pointed out there might be some coastal areas that are that are being protected. Isn't it inevitable that, that um, the ecology there is going to suffer because of the northern metropolis? Well, I think this is not a you know, necessary evil per se, because, we have, you know, we have always advocated, um, uh, especially in one of our reports in the past, that the government should, um, you know, introduce uh, industrial clusters or, you know, logistic parks to systematically uh, relocate these brownfield operators into a centralized location. Well, um, this is good for two reasons. Firstly, by clustering them together in a centralized location, this can enable economies of scale and uh, allow these uh, operators to, you know, come together and, you know, make the infrastructure easier to plan and, uh, Enable that you know roads are wide enough. You know all the provisions are uh, provided for in a one single location. That's the first reason. Secondly, it's uh, well to take a long-term perspective. You know the operations of these operators are now still kind of low tech because it's just open storage and things like that. So we need to have a strategy to help these operators to upgrade uh, their operations. You know to move beyond the current status. Uh, also to improve their economic contribution to Hong Kong while, you know, releasing land for development so that, you know, other ecologically sensitive areas can remain protected. So I think, you know, there's a solution, but it takes uh, systematic planning and also determination from the government to implement a systematic relocation strategy. Right, but the government is uh, considering, uh, I mean, they will be introducing multi-storey buildings to, uh, for these uh, uh, brownfield operators, right? But that will take a few years. Mr. Leung, what do you yes. know about that? Um, there are two sites in the land sale program uh, this year in Yunlong, and uh, the government has also announced that they will introduce sites, uh, industrial sites, uh, in Hong Shui Kiu uh, in the next uh, financial year. However, you know, for uh, these uh, multi-story buildings, you know, 30% uh, of the gross floor area will be reserved for these brownfield operators. But, you know, considering the uh, financial uh, viability and also the business case for potential bidders, this uh, 30% is a very huge concern for some of these uh, potential bidders. So I'm not sure how this will work out, that's the first. Secondly, for the time, uh, in terms of the timeline, um, the land is only going to be tendered this year and it takes 
some time for them to construct and also for the operators to move in. So there seems to be a disconnect between you know the release of this industrial land and also the, re- the relocation uh, of these brownfield operators. So you know there has to be a more coherent strategy in order to bring these pieces uh, to come together, so that you know the development of the northern metropolis can uh, you know uh, go on smoothly. Dr. Lee, do you do you um, agree that that's a viable um, solution? Having this sort of multi-story buildings for the cargo container storage is that economically, you know, will will it allow the logistic industry to operate? Well, uh, actually, because uh, as what I said, the main problem of the uh, northern new territories part of the development is that uh, there are a lot of the infrastructure is needed before that can be developed because. Uh, for uh, uh, for 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 mankind living, it is not just like we have got a, a, a we have got a few buildings. But apart from a few buildings, that we have to have like some other uh, facilities and also the infrastructures are uh, incorporated. So uh, actually, if you see these like twenty plots which are scattered around different areas in the new territories, this is the main issue for which that's why they developed on that. But for the uh, like other issue, like for example, uh, uh, so that uh, it can be much more better in terms of the uh, uh, economically viable to for the development, as otherwise uh, you you have no way to develop such uh, like for example mountains and also like uh, farmlands and also some other places. So we have to do something uh, beforehand. So uh, these uh, 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 these twenty four sites that they are selected, I think that is mainly because of the fact that they want to connect the dots together. So if we want to connect the dots together. Uh, the least economical uh, 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 the course maybe uh, try to use this method in order to do it step by step. Uh, but of course, that these sort of the economic stuff that it also uh, 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 economic development to certain extent that it also leads to another pro- problem like the ecologically uh, concern, for which uh, 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 we have no way to uh, to avoid uh, because, like for example, for the birds, uh, for like animals, etc. Uh, we, we we cannot pack them into like for example the the buildings of the far, uh, farm buildings that we have seen the fertile garden that kind of things. But uh, what we can do uh, to minimize the ecologically impact, maybe like we can try to put it into like um, uh, we can also increase the number of like um, uh, the centralized uh, uh, centralized uh, uh, vertical uh, vertical garden that kind of things in order to uh, uh, in order to sort of like. Uh, partially, uh, partially reduce the, the overall negative impact on that. Right. And Ms. Chan, I mean, looking at the changes right now, it's supposed to be just temporary because uh, looking uh, forward, we just mentioned uh, the government is, is going to have a multi-story building for these uh, brownfield operators. But um, how difficult do you think? I mean, right now, some of these changes will allow the brownfield operators to uh, set up their operation on farmland or greenbelt areas. So how difficult is it for farmland or greenbelt areas to return to normal once uh, it has been used as brownfield sites? Uh, I would say it's uh, almost irreversible damage because for a piece of farmland, it's not like you have you put soil in it and then the uh, crops will grow. It, there are many micro ecosystem within the soil, and if it's a fertile piece of land, it needs it takes like decades for it to build up the, all the nutrients and all the microorganisms living there. So if you just Take up all the soil and then put cement into it and then there are rose blocks and also air pollution and all stuff like that is 
uh, almost irreversible ecologically. And practically in Hong Kong, we will all know that once it turns into something economically attractive piece of land, it's almost impossible for it to turn back into like less economical, valuable piece of land. It's just like a farmland. So uh, it's actually uh, not, I don't see it as temporary. It's uh, like a permanent uh, weight of development. It's just either brownfield or other development, but it will never turn back into farmland. Right. Mr. Lang? Mr. Lang? Oh. So from uh, yeah. from what Ms. Chan is just saying, it seems like uh, she's suggesting that these changes will pave the way for development on Greenbelt areas. Sh- oh, I, mean, sh- I think, the, the, yeah, sorry. No, 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 go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I think, well, then the Palm Planning Board has a huge role to play in the future regarding this, you know. Um, of course, uh, the new guideline 13G relaxed the previous restrictions in 13F, but, um, you know, ultimately, the safeguard is in the Palm Planning Board's hands. And uh, in, you know, uh, reviewing and uh, uh, every application that comes uh, afterwards, they will have to be very uh, prudent and also very uh, sensitive to the uh, details of each site to see, you know, if the ecological value will be adversely affected or like his chance there will be uh, without an irreversible damage such that, you know, this land would be unable to revert to their original uh, condition in the future. So I think, well, of course, the guideline uh, relaxed the restriction, but ultimately the decision still rests with the pumping board, so it's not all doom and gloom. Yeah. So, Dr. Lee, I mean, we, we're all saying that, oh, maybe these vertical storage for the cargo containers um, could be an answer. Uh, but then there's a question of whether it's convenient or accessible for the logistic industry. Um, if you relocate them to, to um, you know, places a long way from the new territories, it would not be very viable for these operators, wouldn't it? Well, uh, actually, I think uh, 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 we have to develop, uh, we have to got some pawns first. So it's just like we, we have to have got uh, some, some, some city, uh, some uh, part of the city that they are developed first before we can connect all the dots together. So um, uh, while we may just say that in some of these pawns at the present moment, logistically, they may not be really good in the sense that maybe now they are, they are, uh, they are quite remote. But uh, that is the that is the that is also the main reason why they have to have got these ports to be developed first. Because if these ports are developed, then uh, we can have got some other infrastructures that can be incorporated. So if we just talk about like electrical wires, electrical connections, not just about those like water pipes, etc. So we need to have got some ports that they are collected uh, that they are they they, they they have to be built first. And then why these are used like uh, in terms of uh, 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 why they why they are selected because uh, they 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 are um, uh, these areas if we look at it so we have got uh, they are located in somewhere in uh, Yunnan, Tumun, and also northern districts with the uh, largest plots for example in uh, Pengkon in Shenzhou that is like forty two point eight hectares so these areas are some of the areas for which that uh, which we can firstly develop first and then so that we can have got all the other 
uh, facilities that can be connected together. Right. And Dr. Lee, earlier you uh, suggested maybe we can develop centralized uh, vertical gardening to make up for the uh, um, the move that uh, is being uh, undertaken. Um, yeah. I have a message here from a listener, John. He says, um, your guest mentioned vertical greening. It's a con, he says. It requires a dirty diesel for regular maintenance. I'm not sure if that's true. Ms. Chan, do you know? Uh, I think, first of all, you can't just move uh, uh, plants or animals uh, out from their homes and then just put them together and expect them to leave. And so, and not to mention, you need all other stuff to maintain the building. So it's actually not viable in the first place, I guess. Dr. Nice. Lee, you agree? Well, uh, actually, what I said is, is that, well, when the development is, development is invertible, when uh, northern, uh, northern neutral choice that has been on the agenda of the government already, and then uh, when we try to see, like for some hundred years ago in Hong Kong, we have got, well, well <laughs> not much buildings in Hong Kong, right? But then when the city is developed, then we have no way to avoid this kind of a damage. So when the damage is in a, unavoidable, then we have got some other questions, which includes like how can we, uh, how, uh, uh, when the farmland is disappear, so is there any possibility for which we can do it in the other way? So one of the possibility may be the whole industrial building. We have got a lot of industrial buildings that they are idols. And then now what the people now... All right, all right uh, Dr. Lee, maybe yeah. you'll have to continue after the news because oh, we have okay. to take a quick break for <laughs> the news. But we can continue our discussion afterwards. Um, now, if you're tuning in and uh, you want to ask our guests questions or share your views on today's topics, you can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RCHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rchk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. And here's a quick look at the weather, mainly cloudy with a few showers. Showers will become more frequent with squally thunderstorms during the day and the top temperature will be around 29 degrees right now it's 27 degrees relative humidity 80 percent it's now 9 30 with a new summary here's todd harding the Transport Department says all traffic lights are working normally again after it had earlier warned motorists to take care when driving around Hong Kong Island. This followed a voltage dip early this morning, which caused traffic lights in the area to malfunction. At least 21 people have died in a fire at a hospital in Beijing. The blaze broke out at Changfeng Hospital in the southwest of the capital. More than 70 people were rescued as firefighters brought the blaze under control. The cause of the fire is under investigation. And one of HSBC's top shareholders, Ping An Asset Management, has renewed its calls for the bank to be broken up, saying HSBC's operating performance is deteriorating. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. Scammers are everywhere. If an unknown caller claims to be a law enforcement officer, even if they have your personal information, you should never transfer money or disclose your bank account information, especially any passwords. Some online scammers may pretend to be lovers and investment experts. At the beginning of the investment, you might earn a little, but the scammers will eventually take all your money. When in doubt, call the police anti-scam helpline, 1-8-2-2. A positive attitude among citizens and government departments fosters the constructive handling of complaints. The Ombudsman promotes synergy between citizens, the government and itself to enhance the quality of public administration. The Ombudsman carries out independent and impartial investigations to make a more efficient, open and accountable public administration which is conducive to the well-being of our community. Positive complaint culture for better administration. Office of the Ombudsman.
Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Wednesday morning with Jenny Lam and me, Janice Wong. Still with us on the program is senior Greenpeace campaigner Chan Haoshen, Jason Leung, researcher from our Hong Kong Foundation, and Dr. Rita Lee, director of Xuyan University's Sustainable Real Estate Research Centre. So, Dr. Lee, just before the break, you were um, talking about the possibility of building vertical gardens um, because we have to... Basically, you know, when we use these green belt zone and we build the northern yeah. metropolis, the nature has to move somewhere. One of our listeners um, wrote in and said that's just a con. What do you think? Well, uh, actually, uh, what I say is that, well, as what I said earlier, is that, well, when the, when the development is, like, uh, is going on, uh, animals, that are animals and also plants that they are killed, we have no way to, 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 uh, to turn it back. That is true. But at the same time, is that if you look at Singapore's development, if you have been to Singapore, you may find that actually Singapore is even much more cooler than Hong Kong. Then you may have got a question, hey, why Singapore is even cooler than Hong Kong? If you take the MRT there, you may find that there are more and more buildings that they have got a fertile garden and uh, and the, and the past for which you can see the green size is a lot much more than when you went there 10 years ago. Then you may ask some questions what they have done. So obviously is that they have done a lot of like fertile garden, but then if we talk about another sense, another sense, which Hong Kong people are also doing now, if you go to the supermarket, you may find that there are a lot more like uh, green vegetables, what they said is like uh, a plant in Hong Kong. So you may ask a question, so where do these like, plants come from? They are planted in those like, industrial buildings. Now what I want to say here is that, well, the ecological damage is irritable. So how we can uh, sort of like minimize it, for example, from the carbon neutrality perspective, how, can, how we can ensure what the government said is that we have to be like carbon neutral. How can we achieve the carbon neutral and also carbon peak requirement? Then we can minimize it in that way. And then if the farmland is lost, because uh, uh, originally there are lost, uh, some of these are actually farmland. So if the farmland is lost, so Hong Kong, we cannot just say that we have got a concrete jungle. So uh, if we have got any problem, then everybody, are, uh, everybody have no food at all. Then these are things that we have to solve it. So one way for which that even mainland China is doing is that uh, they have got a lot of the buildings, a lot of industrial buildings have been turned into like the whole building is just for like farming. And then that kind of farming, it is like it can support the food at the same, at, at the same time that we have got, where we have bring in some other things that uh, like for example, carbon neutrality and then uh, food and then uh, maybe uh, something for which that originally we have got the farmland, but we just pack the farmland into like the whole building. Centralize it. But that's not conservation, though. Yes. That that is not conservation of nature. That is not. That, that is not. Uh, uh, that is not to certain extent. We cannot just say that. Well, uh, if that's the case, then we have like uh, uh, we, we we cannot like conserve the uh, we cannot conserve those like birds and plants. Yes, this is what we have seen. But at the same time, is when the sort of like development is invertible. So how can we minimize it? Is it enough? How can we? How can we? How can we? Sort of like minimize the problem, and then how can we achieve the goal of the win-win-win environmental, economic, and social development? So we are not just talking about like environmental, ecological. Because uh, if if we just talk about environmental and ecological, uh, Hong Kong cannot be developed in the way that we have seen as a as a financial center. So of course the best way is that we have uh, no development at all, so that uh, we 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 can see so much like green, green areas. But what we have seen is that uh, they have got uh, the government has got some plan, for example, including like they have got uh, more migrants from north uh, from China and they work in Hong Kong. 
so I guess that these the development in the northern part of the new territories that is to also to pack these people there as well. So it means that development is inevitable. So if the development is inevitable, so how can we, uh, how can we uh, minimize the problem that bring in due to this development, like for example, urban heat island effect. When we talk about urban heat island effect, obviously that is related to uh, the, the the plants that exist in the cities. So uh, if there are more plants, uh, more vertical garden, and then more like uh, more more green areas, of course that can be uh, that can be uh, minimize the problem. Uh, if you try to look at the case of Hong Kong, uh, the concrete area that of course they have got a higher heat as, heat source as well. But how can we minimize it? Then we can just learn some experience from like Singapore, where how they how if you travel, then you know how they develop over how they how these changes that take place, and then how many trees that they have planted each year. So they have they have developed it. They have got development. But at the same time, they also stated that each year how many trees they have to replant. So that's why that if you go there, you may find oh, this is cooler than Hong Kong. That's it. Right. So Chen Hoxian, do you do you agree that that development inevitably means nature has to suffer? I think putting development in a in a binary opposition to protect environmental protection is quite a last century concept. Because nowadays, I guess even the government and even the, central, uh, the Chinese government, they agree that the development need to be sustainable in order to give a livable city for all people. So I never agree in a way that oh, uh, the environment should be stay intact in order for development to go on. And so I don't think uh, uh, protecting the environment means Hong Kong will lose the position of financial center or whatsoever. So, uh, so I guess uh, it, all, all the suggestions from uh, Dr. Lee is that needs a very um, corn, cornerstone to build on that is that uh, there if uh, there should be a good planning from the government because uh, what what the government is doing now is that they just use a very, very short-sighted solution to just propose or procrastinate the problem until we don't know when. And if there is a news that uh, they just expand some new size of brownfields and then they think, oh, uh, the problem can be solved for now. But then what about later? There are still many problems that, that, that they need to um, to think about and how about the come uh, the like uh, when there is a green new green area so when will that be is uh, they they just do it piece by piece and we don't see a practical timeline or how they they are going to solve the brown view in the future if they are going to make the new territories into a metropolis uh, may, may i add a point yep go ahead uh, yeah. Dr. Yeah. Lee. because in section 16 application uh, uh because i have actually set uh, set in uh the meetings of the session 16 application for more than one year so uh usually they uh, by the time they approve the session 16 application they have included some of the requirements in the planning conditions which include for example if you damage how many trees then you have to plant how many trees in addition. So it means that there are a lot of the guidelines there for which the government uh, still need to do. So it does not mean that, well, because that is now turned into the uh, uh, category two, so they can do whatever they like. Uh, they also need to comply with that. And then according to Section 13G, so what is set in the company board guidelines that is set out in uh, on the 14th of April, it also mentioned that it has to be environmentally, ecologically uh, viable for, for the impact assessment. They have to fulfill that. So it is what we have to do is that the, how they strictly follow these like, impact assessment and also the guidelines that they have done afterwards. All right, let, let's go to uh, Mr. Leung. 
Mr. Lang? Um, I mean, uh, so Dr. Lee here, she's saying that uh, there are strict guidelines that uh, have to be followed. Um, we were talking about what's going to happen after these uh, guidelines are changed. But actually, in the past, I mean, um, some land uh, in the new territories uh, was also reclassified, right, uh, back in uh, 2008. Is that correct? Right, uh, uh, what happened yeah. there? Um, just uh, well before before answering your question, I think uh, I would like to uh, add to the points previously mentioned by both uh, the speakers. As in, um, you know, they both have valid points in that you know conservation or environmental protection and development does not to be uh, does not need to be you know uh, opposing concepts. And I think um, while development takes place, you know, in terms of conservation, uh, instead of you know leaving everything untouched, there should be. Uh, a concept of proactive conservation in that the government there uh, should take an proactive approach to you know restore some of the environment or to enhance the bio uh, diversity in the area so um, even though some of these uh, green areas might eventually be you know undertaken for development but you know in other even more ecologically uh, valuable areas uh, there, ha there should be room uh, for improvement in that we can, you know, boost the biodiversity, you know, proactively going in and managing the environment to welcome more uh, uh, birds or animals to come to enhance the overall uh, biodiversity. One case in point, uh, I think, is the uh, Lok Marshall uh, NPR station uh, in which, you know, uh, to compensate for the construction of the station, the uh, NPRC actually compensated for uh, this project in, you know, through an, uh, another piece of wetland uh, uh, that is, you know, adjacent to the station. And uh, they actually undertook uh, efforts to manage the wetland and introduce a new species, uh, ensure that the, uh, the natural flow of the water, so on and so forth. And now um, the wetland is, you know, uh, as compared to when it first opened, the biodiversity has actually increased. And I think that is the case in point uh, in that, you know, development and conservation does not uh, uh, have to be opposing concepts. And that, you know, while developing the uh, new territories or even uh, the northern metropolis, there can be a win-win situation for both the uh, environment and also uh, the development in general. And uh, going back to your question, I actually uh, agree with uh, uh, Professor in that, you know, uh, while the change in the uh, Town Plain Board guidelines seems to have uh, relaxed the restrictions on surface. And of course, if everything uh, goes through, uh, I mean, if every application goes through, uh, uh, it will be uh, uh, damage done uh, to the environment. But as you said, you know, uh, the Town Plain Board actually still has you know, a lot of uh, power in deciding whether to approve uh, certain uh, applications or not. And uh, uh, hopefully, the town planning board members will, you know, adhere to the guidelines and uh, scrutinize each uh, application in detail when uh, uh, looking at all these uh, different applications to assess if the impact on the environment is indeed, uh, uh, you know, uh, irreversible. And if, if it is so, this application should not be allowed to uh, go, uh, you know, to be to, to be taken forward. But then, of course, this will create another problem in that, you know, while well, these brownfield operators, they are forced to relocate because of the uh, new development area. And if their application to move elsewhere is not approved, then where will these operators go? And how would the, uh, these necessary 
uh, ancillary operations to our container terminal, what will happen to them? This is a problem that the government has to address. And I think, you know, like what I said previously, there has to be a systematic strategy to address these concerns. Otherwise, you know, um, we, we, we will be facing a lot of problems in the future. Right. Uh, and Mr. Lang, what I also wanted to know was uh, what actually happened uh, back in 2008 after um, some, some land in the new territories uh, was uh, also reclassified to allow uh, brownfield operations. I mean, what happened there? I mean, did, 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 well, I I mean, did it end up having more brownfield sites or, yeah, can you, can you, can you um, let us know what happened? Well, I think um, uh, going back to 2008 or even years earlier, you know, uh, the brownfield clusters they actually uh, increased uh, because you know government uh, enforcement actions were not that proactive uh, throughout these years, and uh, actually uh, different groups have conducted you know aerial surveys uh, in the new territories in the past, and they found that these brownfield clusters have uh, actually be, uh, been extending uh, uh, in the past few years. So regardless of these you know uh, reclassification or relaxation or whatever you call it. You know, there, there's a tendency that, you know, some opportunistic people would uh, expand these operations because of the uh, economic attractiveness uh, of these uh, operations. So I think, you know, to, uh, besides the uh, tumbling board guidelines, there has also to be, you know, stronger and uh, uh, more uh, efficient uh, enforcement operations from uh, the land department, for example, to really... Uh, look at the uh, situation in new territories and then ensure that uh, the development is actually compliant with all the uh, government regulations and guidelines. Right. And Ms. Chen? Uh, yes, and I want to add that at one last point is that uh, brownfield is never a development. I mean, it's uh, actually a very inefficient way of using land. And even though there are some valuable operations in there, most of them are actually some of uh, most of them are low economical value, and also uh, some of them are illegal. So if we want a metropolis in the new territories, I don't think developing into them into brownfield is something in a governance plan or Hong Kong people want to see the new territories turning into a brownfield size operation uh, uh, park. Okay. All right, so Ms. Chan, we'll have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, senior Greenpeace campaigner Chan Hao-shen. Many thanks also to Jason Leung, a researcher from our Hong Kong Foundation, and uh, Dr. Rita Lee, director of Xuyan University's Sustainable Real Estate Research Centre. It's now 9.46, and in a moment, we'll find out more about a new COVID subvariant found in Hong Kong. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. Hi, I'm Michael Teen, Roundtable Legislator. I want to congratulate RTHK on its uh, 95th birthday. And I've always been a fan of RTHK. I think over the years they've done a very good job balancing the needs of citizens to have transparency and factual use. So I congratulate them, and I believe that they will continue to do the same. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233 and have your say. 
A new COVID variant called Arcturus that's been driving up cases in India has been detected in Hong Kong, but there's so far no sign that it's spreading here. To find out more about the new sub-variant, we're now joined on the line by Dr. Vijay Danasakaran, Associate Professor at the University of Hong Kong School of Public Health. Good morning, Dr. Danasakaran. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on the program. Um, can you first tell us more about uh, Arcturus? Uh, how is it different from other variants we've seen over the past few years? Um, the Arcturus, I still can't pronounce it, sorry. Uh, <laughs> the official name is XBB.1.16. is uh, very similar, in fact, to many other variants that have been circulating in the recent past, which is also being titled as XBB. It's a new recombinant. Uh, the key things that are different with this variant is that uh, there's no difference in the spike protein. So we are all quite good. Uh, Our immune system should work really well against this new variant. It's got some other mutations, just two other mutations in other parts of its genome where people are trying to study them quite quite well at this moment. Um, We don't really think that um, it it actually evades any immunity. It just seems that it's, it's got some growth increased growth advantage than other variants uh, but this could be due to various other things as well i mean um it could be just due to right you know um india has not had a big wave very recently so they could be just because of that there could be a new wave going up but there's no indication that this new variant xbb 1.16 is going to you know uh outcompete or become such a big variant as uh the, the earlier omicron variants so this variant needs to be taken into consideration because of these new mutations, which can contribute to its increased spread in the population. However, I personally don't think this this is going to have a major impact like one of these earlier variants that we've seen. What are the signs and symptoms and severity of this Arcturus? Um, There's there's no indication there's any differences in the pathogenicity or the virulence of the the variant itself in in the human population. There has been some indication there's, you know, there's increased evidence of conjunctivitis in very young children and things like that. But however, there's, there's, we still don't have any robust evidence towards increased pathogenicity. There's lots of cases, but we would expect lots of cases when the virus itself is spreading much faster rather than actually having any improvement in severity. So uh, what I would say is apart from having a uh, uh, um, um, very difficult new nickname, I don't really think this variant is quite that special. You know, there's been a lot of talk of the WHO possibly declaring an end uh, of the pandemic uh, before the end of this year, because at least um, 90% of the population in the world has some level of immunity. Do you think that's a possibility, given that we constantly have these new variants? I mean, I I certainly think that the pandemic um, would end rather soon, or officially would end rather soon. I mean, I think it's just because there are other other things that need to be taken into consideration as well. There's other priorities. Um, as we've seen in the recent past, when the Northern Hemisphere had uh, increased cases of COVID, uh, recent evidence shows that there were actually more influenza cases than COVID cases itself. So um, the, the designation of a pandemic, just, I mean, in terms of a, 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 a governmental policy, actually uh, indicates that governments have to pay special attention to COVID-19. But the data actually shows that you don't have to actually pay special attention just to COVID-19, but there's also these other respiratory viruses which are circulating and there's lots of other problems as well. So I think these would indicate that, that governments can actually 
um, widen their um, their um, measures in terms of you know not just towards one pathogen but more generally in terms of public health. Right. And, and just now you uh, mentioned that uh, Arcturus is uh, nothing special, um, but it's uh, designated as a variant under monitoring by the World Health Organization. So um, so why, why do you think uh, the WHO has uh, put it in that category? I mean, um, there are there are many um, there are many things that which actually uh, invokes the WHO to pay special attention to variants. One of the things is not knowing enough about the variant itself. And if the variant is actually spreading faster than all other variants, I think the WHO should raise concern that there's something new emerging. And you should also remember that um, if you don't raise such a concern, people are going to question the WHO in terms of why you haven't you warned us in terms of there's a new variant emerging in India in recent past. And based on all these facts taken together, I think the WHO has raised uh, a caution, not really a concern, a caution that people should pay more attention to this variant because it could cause more cases, not just in terms of pathogenicity or severity, just in terms of just purely just more cases can actually cause big public health issues. So just, just for these reasons, I think it's a good, um, good point that there's some caution which is needed. However, I don't really think there's anything super special with this variant. Right. So, I mean, you, you agreed earlier that perhaps the WHO should declare the end of the pandemic uh, because the public health attention needs to be diverted elsewhere. But that will also mean that people will no longer be able to get free COVID jabs. Um, is that going to be a problem? Uh, I mean, I think in terms of vaccination, it's, it's very important that we continue the vaccine campaign. Um, um, however, uh, uh, having said that the WHO itself has come out with new guidelines and adjusted guidelines in terms of vaccination. So they do, you know, uh, mostly very highly recommend vaccines only for the high priority groups, especially um, the most elderly and other adults who have some other comorbidities and you know, compromised positions who would be vulnerable to these these vaccines. So the government, the WHO itself has these new guidelines, which I think is quite reasonable as well. So, 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 but then if, if the vaccines aren't provided for free by the government, Hong Kong government, for example, it has been, um, people aren't, just aren't going to take them anymore. I mean, I, I, I think uh, um, for, like I said, right, we don't really need uh, um, um, a vaccination for all age categories at the moment because we are a very highly vaccinated population. Um, I think we've had a discussion about this a few weeks ago where we need to come up with annual or, you know, biannual guidelines in terms of how we're going to proceed further in vaccinations. I would strongly uh, recommend, despite, you know, the WHO changing into a pandemic, and I think the Hong Kong government needs to pay attention and provide and continue to provide vaccinations just because Hong Kong government shouldn't do what the WHO, you know, uh, just because WHO changes their guidelines, we shouldn't stop giving out vaccines um, mm. when it's actually helping our public health. And we know that we have uh, issues with our public health policies as well. Yeah, so actually you also mentioned a few weeks ago that, that uh, you would expect um, the, the cases to increase after the Easter holidays, right? So, so from a public health uh, epidemiological point of view, we have one holiday, now the summer holiday. Are, are we just going to continue to see these up and downs and reappearance of new variants? Certainly. I mean, uh, not just uh, with COVID variant alone, though. We, we already have a bunch of different viruses circulating in the community. 
Uh, with regards to COVID, though, I, I really think that the XBB 1.16 uh, seems like it is going to become the dominant variant globally. But however, it's not going to cause the impact of the previous variants. That's what I'm trying to say, because it certainly is, has an advantage and it is growing. Um, and then in terms of which variant is going to come next, uh, I, I, this is a really hard prediction to make because we have multiple viruses circulating. We are going to have, um, I mean, I, we can expect uh, a series of epidemics throughout uh, this, this coming months just because, you know, like we mentioned, that, that the last three years is reduced immunity towards lots of different viruses. Um, how, and then because of this, I really think that uh, rather than COVID-19 being the biggest impact to the population, we're going to have all these other pathogens come and cause these epidemics. Um, maybe not just one virus, but maybe it's a collection of viruses circulating in the community. As far as the scientific community is concerned, so you're saying, you know, there are other pathogens that we need to pay attention to. What are the scientists paying attention to right now? Which other pathogens other than COVID? Um, we are certainly paying attention to all respiratory viruses at the moment. Uh, certainly influenza is on, on the rise at the moment. Uh, we've had uh, respiratory syncytial virus, which is RHV, on a rise. And there's a lot lots of other viruses as well, the human metanumoviruses. There's rhinovirus cases, which predominantly affects um, very young children whenever there's you know school outbreaks and things like that. And there's lots of other enteric viruses as well, where there's not been outbreaks of gastroenteric viruses, like ent uh, enterovirus as an example. And so there's, there's a collection of uh, viruses, and these viruses we've always been, you know, monitoring continuously for, for decades now. And we, we used to have a really good idea how it circulates um, in a normal scenario. And now, because of this lack of immunity in, in the younger population, we would expect things to act not normally. And so we need to pay attention to all of these things as well, in addition to COVID-19. Yeah, can you, you know, I mean, in, in a normal year, actually, uh, influenza alone killed a lot of people. Can you, can you explain the picture in that? Well, certainly. I mean, so um, influenza in Hong Kong, um, it's, it, every year is not a big year. Um, we have um, a peak of large influenza seasons every few other years. And um, I think the most recent large epidemics were between 2015 and 2017, where we had um, uh, the public health system was stressed. We had, um, in terms of 500 or 600 mortality, especially in the elderly population groups. Um, and since then, we've not had a really big uh, COVID, um, sorry, influenza uh, epidemic. Uh, it has been rather, you know, medium to low intensity just before the pandemic until 2000, early 2020. And now we've missed these three years. And so this is an unpredictable period. And we don't know how big an influenza epidemic could get. And we should also remember that we do maintain some sort of, you know, uh, non-pharmaceutical interventions. Like, you know, people take, people are more aware of symptoms. People call in sick as soon as they realize they have they have uh, a throat infection. Just like, you know, I have a few staff at this moment who just called in um, a sick since, since Easter. And, and so I think people are more aware of uh, uh, the, the respiratory virus symptoms at the moment, and people are actually testing for COVID. If they're not, they're actually thinking and going to the hospital at the moment. So there's, there's a wide range of issues at the moment that's circulating. So the best precaution is please don't show up to work if you're sneezing and coughing and all that. All oh, certainly. I mean, I think self-isolation is the best strategy to actually stop the transmission of the virus. And however, uh, since, since, you know, um, if it's COVID-19, I mean, we don't have to stay at home all the, all the time. It's just because a lot of people do have immunity against the virus. The main population, which I would be really concerned is if you have elderly, you know, relatives or friends, don't, you know, go and, go and see them while you are actually 
um, um, have a throat infection or, or suspect that you have an upper respiratory infection um, and, you know, avoid scenarios where you're actually... All right, uh, Dr. Dennis Akaran, I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. Thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Dr. Vijay Dennis Akaran, Associate Professor at the University of Hong Kong School of Public Health. Many thanks also to you who commented or emailed us today and to our guest presenter, Jenny Lam, and producer, Angie Mann. I'll be back with another edition of Back Chat tomorrow with Danny Gittings.